Yeah, hello, my name is Michael Taylor. I'm the Head of Regional Affairs at Manchester Metropolitan University. Uh, in my spare time, I also blog and I'm a, a governor of Aquinas College in Stockport and the Link Governor for Employability as well. And, um, and I'm delighted to be here with you, my old friend Frank, today. <laughs> Welcome to the downtown Zen, Michael. And listen, before we get into uh, the various challenges of your uh, present role, let's talk about uh, when we first met. Yeah. You were editor of Fine Magazine at Northwest Business Insider, uh, and your time there because you were there for a considerable number of years. Yeah, I pitched up in year 2000, Nick Jaspin, the owner at the time. Um, I applied for the job when I was, I'd been working in London and um, yeah, I did 12 years in total, Frank, and in that time. Um, we grew the business. Not only did we have the Northwest magazine, which I was the day-to-day -day editor of, we also expanded into the events sphere, which is something you're obviously very good at as well and uh, developed an online presence, which it basically didn't exist when, when we first started. And, and we also expanded regionally. So we had insiders by the time I left in um, the Midlands, which was an acquisition, Yorkshire, which was an expansion, and Wales and the Southwest as well. And, um, and, and also doing events in other parts of the country, such as Milton Keynes and Belfast, which is cities I'd never worked in before. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you Milton Keynes was the highlight. And so in terms of um, your time there, so 12 years, uh, clearly there were, there were changes then uh, that occurred during your time as editor. And, you know, I recall Insider was, was very much the business bible uh, during that period of time. And you launched some fabulous initiatives as well, things that are still going today, such as 42 yeah. Under 42, for example, celebrating young entrepreneurs in the region. Uh, a, a fantastic uh, gossip page right at the back of the magazine, which again is, is still part of the publication. But I remember when Insider used to drop through your letterbox, it was like a tomb, you know, it was a thud. It could wake you up because it was um, such a a fantastic missive of information um, and, and you know you could take a month to actually get through it if you wanted to know the detail of what was happening across the northwest um, now this is no criticism of uh, the people who are currently involved in the magazine but of course we live in a very different world now and so insider comes um, through your door uh, and is you know much uh, slimmer publication um, I think the organization the magazine will concede that it probably makes more uh, money through its uh, events than it does through uh, the publication itself and then as you say you've moved it towards more yeah. digital platforms as well but alongside other regional uh, publications and media uh, there are some significant challenges I just wanted to get your thoughts on where you think we're going because you know I think local newspapers are really struggling now yeah uh, and more worrying for me is the standard of journalism uh, and whether or not we can actually afford um, the investigative type of journalistic approach that yeah. you were certainly great at uh, and many others in the region have been in the past as well 
Yeah, I mean, that's a big, big, expansive question, Frank. And, and, I'm, and I'm glad you added the caveat that a lot of other local media have faced a similar shrinkage in regional print advertising budgets and have had to diversify accordingly. It's the same right across business to business publishing as well. You'll notice lots of other trade publications, some of them that might fall into your orbit. Um, let's take the property industry as an example as well, Estates Gazette, Property Week, all of those. They used to land on your doormat with a thud as well. So did the, the sector that I used to work in before I, uh, I entered the, the, the regional business market, uh, which, was, which was broadcasting trade. You know, it was a rich number of competitive titles and print advertising has dropped down. And the single biggest factor in that is the internet because people have that ability to be able to reach niche audiences in a measurable, quantifiable way with very, very targeted advertising. And the main recipient of that revenue, unfortunately, has not been the publications that have managed to diversify, but Google and, Google and Facebook. Mm. And they don't share out the, the benefit of their riches, despite every effort by the management of all the media companies to make their products Facebook friendly, SEO compliant, and frankly, we mean Google by that. Mm. And the big tech companies have completely cornered the market in what was once a very rich domestic media market and businesses have had to try and diversify. I have every amount of sympathy with the people running any media business at the moment and the challenges thereof. I have very limited day-to-day um, -day contact with them, but my one bit of contact at the moment is my good friend Chris Bird has purchased Quest Media, a local media group in Tameside, which has a website, um, ambitions to do local community events in Tameside, in, you know, in Ashton, Staley Bridge, Hyde, places like that. Um, and I work with him on a few election events um, for the general election just gone. And he's very kindly given me a berth playing my favourite music on Sunday nights on a programme called Music Therapy. But Chris is a good friend and, I, and I've, I've talked long into the night with him about some of the challenges that they're having to face in trying to be a hyper-local product. And that's maybe where there's an opportunity. Whereas the Manchester Evening News, which is obviously the, the biggest media product in, our, in, in that, that market, um, is, is still omnipresent. What I will say, in absolute fairness, is there is no better journalist covering political affairs in this country at the moment to my mind than jennifer williams at the manchester evening news and there is no no, no journalist more hard working than her i don't say this because she's a close friend or anything or i'm just bigging up my pals uh, i do have a healthy um professional relationship with her but that's totally born of respect she she does the hard yards she gets stuff leaked to her because people trust her but she also rings people up all the time just for a chat to find out what's going on, what they take. And I think that's maybe one of the lost arts of journalism that people don't do enough of. There have been a few other journalists around the patch who've done that as well. I thought Jessica Middleton Pugh, when in her time as the editor of Place Northwest, made a good job of doing that as well. And I think their events have been, have been pretty good on the whole. Um, but people get their news and information from different sources now. And obviously social media is a, is a big source of that. Like you, the first thing I often do in the morning when I wake up with my cup of coffee, you know, you scroll through, through your curated feed of news 
which I think we always anticipated that might happen with technology, but that's happened through the forum of Twitter. And I think that's become a really broken forum. Mm -hmm. It's not a pleasant place to be. I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm, I'm not on it very much anymore. Mm -hmm. I don't like the toxicity of it. I think whatever it is you want to go on Twitter and comment about, A, you're never going to change anybody's mind. <laughs> and B, you're going to get in a row in yeah. about 10 seconds flat. Um, you can't have a disagreement or an opinion about anything from Everton, Liverpool, um, the price of fish in Marple, where I live anything it's all just so angry and so i've just taken a decision apart from when i'm punting out my music program at the moment and boast and you know it's it's still a i've still got five and a half thousand followers so i quite like them to read my blog from time to time so i drop it onto twitter but you know i aggressively block people who are who are pursuers our university's had its own issues as you might know in the last month around um, the return of students and that in itself has attracted um, unbelievable adverse and mis misinformed comment that our team who are who are brilliant by the way have to deal with day to day so i don't know how you do it frank with with you know a, a brilliant well-connected business organization like yours um, it's a massive challenge in how to how to conduct yourself online I think you probably do it quite well. I'm as interested in what you've got to say as I am, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, listen, I think that, you know, as with all media, um, you've got to, you've got to be authentic. Yeah. Uh, so it's no good us having a load of guidelines, rules, regulations in place to say to our team and certainly to say to me, you can tweet this, but you can't tweet that. Or you can say this, you can't say that. You know, I've been embroiled in arguments that, you know, the day after you wake up and you think, why do they even bother? Because as you rightly say, Michael, you, you're never going to convince the person that you're uh, debating with. And anyway, what a, a, a daft forum, in a sense, uh, to embark upon discussions and debates because yeah. the complex issues that you tend to be drawn into football aside which can tend to be a bit daft but you know if you're talking about what the government strategy for covid should be and how you balance yeah. the economic needs and the health needs then how are you supposed to do that with 140 characters or whatever it is yeah um, it, it's it, it, it's nonsense isn't it so yeah. I, I think i've probably drawn the conclusion that you have that that you know i've tried to be more disciplined in terms of what we do post on there and certainly what yeah. i personally post on there um I, I had to you know almost be handcuffed to the radiator last night when manchester united got beat 6-1 followed by liverpool being drugged 7-2 as aston villa to not to, to not take to social media um but you know joking aside i i do think that you the when people like you start to decide it's more hassle than it's worth that's when social media platforms are in trouble. And I've thought for some time, I came off Facebook years ago. Okay. I've been Interesting. On for, for ages. Um, I think LinkedIn is far too busy, complex, complicated. I don't find that easy to use. Uh, and likewise, as I say, I think Twitter's becoming a more unattractive place to be for the reasons you've outlined. 
So, well, so we need something, but it, it, perhaps it's time for something new to emerge. Well, I've started to um, submerge myself in the comfortable, loving balm of Instagram and all the, um, all the fakery and beautiful people of that. Um, mainly, it's, as you know, I, got, I, I do enjoy the outdoors. And so I, um, it's lots of pictures of mountain ranges from all over the world, superimposed with people who've taken far too long to compose a picture of them looking handsome or beautiful in front of a mountain range or a tree. But I must admit, I find that a lot more comfortable and soothing than I do spending time on any version of Twitter, be it political, sporting. You know, there's even splits within my own community of uh, fans who support my football team, you know. The happy clappers and the angry brigade, and I, yeah, I, can't, yeah. I can't be doing with it. I just, yeah, uh, I dip in and out. Yeah, uh, and I suppose the other thing I'd just say before we leave the subject of media is that, you know, it reflects in a sense where we are as a country, doesn't it? Because we do have a far more polarised, yeah, community now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so again, if you reflect on your time at Insider. Uh, it was a new Labour government, uh, yeah. politics was very much in vogue, not just in the UK, but right across Europe and the States as well. Uh, whereas now, you know, 20 years on, uh, we're, we are in a place, sadly, I say sadly, in my opinion, sadly, where everything's black and white. Yeah. You know, there are no grey areas. Uh, it seems to me... Um, that, as I say, places like Twitter in particular reflect that. But I think it also brings pressure to local journalists as well. Yeah. Because whereas in the past you would see journalists reporting issues, I find myself now having to, to look a couple of times at a story that's published, whether it be by Jennifer or, you know, Liam over here in Liverpool and there's other reporters as well that... I follow on social media and often it's their opinion and I think that's where we're slipping into the dangerous territory because if you start to uh, confuse news with opinion that's when you can get into real trouble. Yeah I think it's probably fair to say that Frank but it's 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 an opinion of interpretation mm. but I think we've we've moved we've moved into what I call well it's the culture war isn't it people refer to that all the yeah. time yeah. And, and I think there are really hard defi dividing lines now in the culture war between, you know, you can almost predict what a number of what people are, what people's opinions are going to be on a whole range of issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in, probably including support in Liverpool. <laughs> <laughs> and then all those different issues on that trajectory uh, and where they're going to take a, take a stance. I think it's the same in sports journalism as well. And people, okay. people utilise social media for the shock value. Yeah. I know, I, you know, I had a quick look at Twitter and your feed just, just before I came on for this chat. And the subject that's trending is Sunes. Yeah. yeah, because Sky News, obviously, they punt out their most um, vociferous um, shock jocks. That's, that's what he's become. And I don't mean that because he's Scottish, by the way. Apologies <laughs> for any Scottish people out there. Uh, just as he apologised for his comments on Latinos. But... Um, it's what I call a conveyor belt of outrage that people are constantly looking to put items on, on that belt to, to keep it going round. Yeah. And I think the BBC play that to a certain extent as well. And um, we've seen that ourselves with the way that we've had to handle news management in the last couple of weeks around, uh, around our sector. It's always that 
someone someone's always that person on Twitter. And I guess the trick is never to be that person on Twitter. The one that everybody hates, be it Lawrence Fox, Graham Sooners, you know, and occasionally, to be fair, in the Greater Manchester context, Jennifer Williams. Yeah. Yeah. She she, she has a hell of, heck of a ride of it with uh, the abuse she gets. Yeah. And neither you or I would ever uh, condone that sort of behaviour. And it, yeah. it, 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 it's, a, it's a tough gig being a journalist now. Yeah. But, but listen, you you got out and and um, decided to go and do other things with your life, and yeah, including working with you, which was great, Frank. You yeah. know the event, the events you put on, the access to people that you've got, the things that we did together. I, I, I always look back on that very very fondly. Yeah, we had a good eighteen months, didn't we? Yeah, uh, a bit longer than that, but yeah, a bit longer than that. Well, you see, time flies when you're having fun, Michael. Yeah. So. yeah. I thought it was about 18 months ago when you chaired downtown Manchester in business, which was a great time for us as well, because we were relatively new in the city at that time. Um, and of course, the other thing that uh, you did was you penned, I thought, a, a, a magnificent piece of work, um, 40 by 40. So tell us how that came about. And, and you're, you're chuckling there, but I, I tell you, uh, for those who, who might not have read it, uh, it, it's a cracking read, and, and thank you, Frank. Real story of its time, in my opinion. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's a comic novel set against the backdrop of the financial crash of 2008, um, set in Edge and Manchester, <laughs> with a central character very much based on a character that I created as a column in Insider that people didn't realise was a fictional character called Roger Cashman, and uh, I, I changed his name for the publication, Roger to Roger Cashmore, which in many ways was better. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, I, I sometimes think about that. Th there's a whole tradition going on in, um, a whole shift going on in male fiction at the moment, over the last few years. And if I was to do it again, I wouldn't have called it 40 by 40, which was a, a pun. I should probably have called it to the edge. I should probably have called myself Mick Taylor, because it sounds harder. And I wouldn't have done a nice blue and colourful cover. I'd have done a black cover with a dagger emerging because crime fiction and hard-boiled violent crime is actually the thing that sells. So, um, you know, and I was, I'm really chuffed and touched by what you've said about it. That's really kind, Frank. And I was pleased to have been shortlisted for the, to get in the final of Pulp Idol, which is the first time Writer's Prize held in Liverpool by the Writing on the Wall Festival. That, that was a real achievement. And yeah, maybe, maybe I'll return to it one day. At the moment, my, my writing is, um, I've just completed a master's thesis in political science. That's where a lot of my energy has gone into in the last year. But, you know, that, that, you, the encouraging words you've given me will, um, maybe I should return to it. Maybe I could do a book about the, the next phase of Roger Cashmore's life after the end of 2008, where maybe he'd, he considers a, a move into politics and stands in an unwinnable seat with hilarious consequences. <laughs> well, I'd certainly be front of the queue to buy that. So sounds like a plan that actually. Um, and uh, yeah, in terms of where books are at the moment, yeah, I'd have to agree with that. I'm, I'm a big fan of Tony Parsons as another one. Sorry, that's the example I should have used really. But he, he, he did in the early days. Yeah was far different. He's moved yeah. into that crime novel now, hasn't he? Which, which yeah. is, but, you know, I must admit, I, I preferred his earlier stuff. And it's the same with Christopher Brookmeyer, who's now Chris Brookmeyer. 
And instead of writing novels about a jolly journalist in Edinburgh and the capers he gets up to, you know, it's it's dark. It's it's almost Ian Rankin Reba stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I guess probably the best writer working in Manchester at the moment in fiction is Joseph Knox, who really is 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 he's a literary writer, classically trained. Um, but his books are hard-boiled Manchester yeah. um, crime fiction yeah. with a, a flawed character with uh, drug and alcohol issues. Right. And that's, you know, <laughs> that's the market we've got to look into. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, quickly moving on. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so you, um, as I say, had uh, a stint with us, which was great, working alongside you, and you were doing one or two other bits and pieces as well. You actually stood as a parliamentary candidate as well for the Labour Party at one point. Yeah, I did. I've now, I've now stood unsuccessfully in two elections, the 2015 general election for Ed Miliband's Labour Party um, as an unashamed um, supporter of New Labour. Mm. I was selected in my local home constituency of Hazel Grove. I took our vote from roughly 5,000 votes in 2010 to 7,500 votes in that election. With, with a good campaign. Um, you know, it was at the expense of the local Liberal Democrats who lost the seat. They've never forgiven me for that. Um, and then I left the Labour Party, as you know, and I I supported Anne Coffey and Luciana, who, who actually was introduced to by you, um, and stood for the Independent Group for Change in the um, ill-fated European Parliament elections on, the, on their ticket in the North West. Um, I still think something had to be done to bring Labour to its senses. And I'm very proud of the role that I played in, in doing that. And, and I think the, the choice that people faced in those elections was fairly clear. I think the choice that people faced in the general election of 2019 was possibly the worst choice anyone has ever faced in this country. I described it as a time as the choice between the smirk and the scowl. And, and I think every fear that I ever had about Boris Johnson becoming prime minister, um, which I didn't, I voted Liberal Democrat, which was, which was difficult for me because I, I really don't, didn't like the candidate I voted for. I don't, I didn't like the party and their platform. I won't repeat what you and I have shared about them in the past. It's the worst kind of opportunistic pavement politics. I've no respect for it, but I ended up voting for them locally and they still didn't win against a uh, against their local MP around here, William Ragg, who's now won three times. Yeah, uh, personally, I have a, a smidgen of respect for him. He's a Brexiteer. Um, but I also have to work with him now, Frank. You know, I'm, yeah. I should probably uh, pull my punches a little bit. Um, he does a lot of good local work. Um, and I don't, you know, obviously, we disagree on Brexit. We disagree on his support for Boris Johnson, who's been, I think, a, an utter disaster. Mm as the um, Prime Minister. I'm interested in the comment you made about, you know, you feeling that there was a need for a breakaway group, the independent group. And of course, uh, people broke away from the Tory party as well. Yeah. Um, again, probably a sign of the times that they didn't even get the sort of leverage that the Social Democratic Party got. It goes back yeah. to comments I made earlier that people are seeing politics now in very black and white terms. Yeah. yeah. Do you think we may be moving into a period where a Keir Starmer type approach, which clearly is more consensual, 
Uh, certainly more to the centre than anything that Jeremy Corbyn had to say, for yeah. example. Yeah. Uh, an opportunity there, or do you think that he may end up getting caught between a new Farage-type party and the Tories? Um, I don't know. I don't have a dog in the fight anymore. I am silently on the sidelines willing Starmer to succeed because I think it's the 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 only route to an alternative to this absolute disaster that's unfolding in front of us with the response to COVID, the response to Brexit. Breaks my heart to see the way our country's gone. Um, I think Starmer's been really impressive. Yeah. Um, but that it's all behind me now, really. And you know, I've got to work with what, whatever politicians we've got. One of the projects I've always been politically um, very passionate about, I think Britain should have a more federal structure and I have applauded every attempt at devolution even the ones that you didn't support back in the early 2000s when you were on the same side as Dominic Cummings in not supporting a, a yes vote in the referendum see I remember these things Frank and um, I, I, I'm a great supporter of what the uh, Metro mayors have done both what Andy Burnham has done in the, in Greater Manchester and what Andy Street has done in the West Midlands. And, to, you know, to a different extent, although I, I don't watch it as closely and it's not clearly as important, what Ben Houchen has been doing in the, in, T, in the Tees Valley as well. I think it's demonstrated where people can show aptitude and local leadership. It's just what this country needs. And the institutions that can line up alongside um, people like the Andes, um, I think shows a much better and more optimistic future. There was a piece in The Economist last week describing Andy Burnham as probably the only politician in Britain who's had a good COVID. And I agree with that. And in many ways, my decision to leave the Labour Party before the Independent Group for Change came about, there's a whole number of different local factors as well. But one of the things that kept me in was what, was what Andy Burnham was doing in, in Manchester, but ultimately, you didn't have to be a Labour supporter to support what he's doing because he was reaching out to a much broader constituency, including, you know, the members of downtown who, you know, he supports and speaks to at your events, which are, which are always really illuminating and, and, and other different groups, the way he engages with the charitable sector, the way he's, he's brought together a different coalition and shown a different way of working that cuts across the culture wars and cuts across the divisive politics by engaging, for instance, with people in the private sector to solve the issue of street homelessness and rough sleeping. That's been remarkable. I mean, for someone to have pulled that off in the way that he has, um, and the fact that the Labour Party, when Corbyn was leader, never thought to ask how they pulled it off. One of the great social policy, um, almost demands from a civilised society to prevent its people from sleeping on the streets. And to say, well, how have you done it in Manchester, Andy? Never thought to ask. So I shouldn't laugh, really, but I think it, it is laughable. Some of the things that happened during uh, Jeremy Corbyn's leadership of, uh, of the Labour Party. And, uh, you know, I've had uh, many debates and discussions, as you can imagine, particularly um, about the, the, the many flaws within the approach that he and his team took. And I'm sure you've it's on your reading list if you've not read it already, left out. Oh, I've it's already read it and reviewed it. Fascinating, yeah. you know, fascinating publication and, yeah. and a fair, further evidence of the failure of that whole project. I have to say, yeah. 
Um, I, you know, I don't think Ed Miliband's Labour Party was much better, to be yeah. honest, but uh, but nothing as as bad as. Uh, yeah. as but listen, I think. No, Frank, I'll, I'll concede a point to you, though. Yeah, I think you were hinting at saying, you know, that I look back and think I did the right thing by supporting the, the independent group for change and the, the need for a new centre party. At the time, I thought Labour was gone. Mm. And I think events have subsequently proved there's, there's been life in the sensible wing of the Labour Party. I heard Bridget Phillipson on the Today programme this morning. You know, there was no voice for people like Bridget, who's a real pr progressive thinker. There was no room for people like Alison McGovern, who I know you know very well, and um, there was, and yet now, and Wes Streeting, who, who we've we've spoken with in the last few months as well, these people are now moving into the mainstream of British politics, whereas they've been at the fringes or they had one foot in the camp and one foot out, like people like Mike Kane and, and Jonathan Reynolds, who are good friends of mine. Um, I thought Labour had gone and they'd had to compromise too far, but, uh, you know, I think maybe I've been prove wrong in that pessimism back then but I, I don't regret anything for a minute. I think that um, it was difficult for anybody uh, during a particular period of, of Labour's recent history even people like me with an emotional attachment to the organisation yeah. from the age of 17 and you know I've yeah. been um, but there was always that instinct within you that said we will come through this eventually yeah. and fortunately that's been proved to be the case and, and can I just say as well and I know you'll share this opinion you know all, as much as I've been a Labour voter Labour supporter all my adult life the fact is that you know I want to see two very strong political parties more than two if it's possible but certainly the two mainstream parties Labour and Conservative challenging each other coming up with new ideas uh, basically making demands of the other party because it makes society better obviously you know the government succeed uh, whether people were the red and uh, you know my despondency in the past five years has been to see what has appeared to be a fairly rudderless government not being held to account in the way that it ought to have been because you have a poor opposition yeah. so you know I speak to uh, many friends who are conservatives and they will say much better now that we've got a credible opposition leader because it will have the resultant impact of the conservative party having to sharpen its pencil uh, and not be as flippant and i use that word advisably in the approach it takes in the future yeah fair point um but listen your role at manchester net is to keep your finger on the pulse of all things political, national, and of course, regional. Um, you do have great relationships with uh, local MPs and Andy Burnham and others. Um, and in terms of Manchester at the moment, what are the issues that are exercised in the minds of, of the university, but also the, the wider stakeholder uh, within uh, that university setting because you work with the private sector and others as well of course yeah the biggest challenge of all i can't we, we can't duck it at the moment is the fact that um our university opened for for the new autumn term a week ahead of everyone else um we have thirty-eight thousand students um, it's an enormous university one of the biggest in the country and uh, unfortunately covid has spiked 
there's been an outbreak of coronavirus in um, in Manchester, as we all know, and we've had to put under lockdown, following advice from Manchester City Council and Public Health England, two of our halls of residence, and that's had a an enormous effect on the day-to-day -day workings of the university. A lot of students are having to do online-only learning, whilst practically, well, they've used the phrase and the media have used the phrase imprisoned in um, in their apartment in their student flats, and it's been a really tough time for them. And the university has been pulling out all the stops to support the students. And um, you know, I've, I've had very little to do with that. We have got an amazing security and support team who've been looking to reassure members of the local community that these students are going to behave well and conduct themselves in what is a you know part of inner city Manchester and we've also got an amazing comms team as well which have had to keep the messages going to the students that they've been supported and the university has supported them they're going to be refunded rent but it's been a really tough time you know, it, it can't not take its toll on on individual colleagues, as, as, I've, as I've witnessed over the last couple of weeks. But, you know, they're digging in, they're doing a good job and they're really, really focused on helping their helping our students to to continue to learn. And yeah, it's online and it's not ideal. It's not the start any of them would have wanted. But we've equally we've had to provide reassurance from the team that I work in to people like our MP, Lucy Powell, who's done a great job. Very fair. She wanted assurances that the university was acting as a good local stakeholder in, the, in her community and our local councillors as well um, in, in Hume. They've been great. They've been not only supporting the students, but also reassuring members of the local community. And we've been, my, my colleague Josie Sykes has been liaising with them brilliantly. And, and also, you know, the mayor, Andy went on the Today programme last Monday and um, you know, I was able to put him in contact with our vice chancellor before he did so, which again, you know, it speaks volumes both for, for Malcolm Press, our VC, and for Andy, that they've got that relationship, that we as a team have got that relationship with our senior politicians that they can, you know, they, they, they can be interviewed. I'm sure if that had happened in many other cities around the country, that their local university would have been thrown under a bus by local politicians. But I think it's a measure of the relationships of respect that we've built up, that we deliver on what we say we're going to do. We do things in partnership um, that Andy was able to, to take those soundings and, and give a good account of what he knew was happening on the ground. Mm. And in terms of building those relationships, I guess that is part of your role, isn't it? Yes, it is, yeah. Or that, you know, those links are, are strong, uh, maintained. And so, you know, when challenges do emerge um, then as you say you've got that sort of uh, quick way in and access to, to those yeah. people equally though the university plays a huge role beyond of course uh, its educational function and therefore you know it, it's a genuine partner in the whole economic ecosystem of Manchester yeah. it's not simply well give us your students we'll look after them and forget the rest you involve yourselves and engage yourselves in many, many other aspects of Manchester life. Yeah, we have to. And there's an emerging agenda in the higher education sector called the Civic University Agenda. You know, if you remember back to when, when, well, when I went to university in 1985, I was one of 10% of 18, 19 year olds who would take that option. And I was very fortunate to, to do so. And um, now it's closer to 40 to 
that's not consistent across all economic groups, by the way. It's almost, you know, the vast majority of middle-class kids get to go to university. Um, but more and more students from what we would call um, uh, non-traditional backgrounds are, are coming to university. And they come to universities like ours. So they've not, and they come with BTEC qualifications often, not A-levels. They come from both socioeconomic and ethnic groups that aren't necessarily used to the rhythms of a university life. So our moral responsibility to them to have a good education is, is massive. And one of the outcomes by which that investment that they make in their future is measured is by the kind of job they're going to get, the kind of life that they're going to lead. Now, uh, they're not necessarily all going to go and get a job for Goldman Sachs, maybe like, um, like, like nobody necessarily <laughs> does from any university. But, you know, there is a traditional cliche that says that they join this treadmill that gets them high paid jobs in the city. That's not necessarily the case. Many of our students look to find a job in Manchester. And because Manchester is the city it is and the city that's growing to the extent it is with all you know, the activities of, of many of the members of organizations like yours, Frank, in the private sector in the city, students want to stick around. It's a great city to be a part of. It's, an, it's a city going places. And often students find themselves not quite knowing where to go next. Mm -hmm. Our challenge is to make sure that they get graduate level jobs when they leave, that they're not sticking around for a couple of years, waiting on tables. Well, in an ideal world, there's not a lot of that going on either at the moment. Um, so it's work with the private sector. We have to work um, to make sure that they get good jobs and, 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 and enjoy everything that Manchester has to offer. I'll give you one example to illustrate that. The, um, we produce something called, we, we've developed a product called Degree Apprenticeships, where large employers ranging from Lloyds Bank, uh, IBM, AstraZeneca, to give three examples, work with us. And they effectively put their students on a sandwich course, to quote some old examples, and at the end of that four-year process where they study at university a couple of days a week or a few uh, about 40% of their time, they come out with a degree at the end of it mm. and, and without the tuition fees that they would have had to pay. So it's, um, and we, we've got 2,000 students now studying with us with their employers on a degree apprenticeship. And we're pretty good at it. Liz Gorb and uh, Jonathan, who run that team, are absolutely top draw and, and they've got great relationships and we have to think how can we make lots of different dimensions to those relationships how can we make employers want to do lots more with us what executive education can they do how this country's been terrible at leadership in the past how can we produce better leaders um, better managers at a, at, a at a ground level and uh, and there's all sorts of things that I think we can offer and develop a a much more rounded product that a university can play its part in educating its executive workforce. And also we have to introduce our students to employment opportunities. And that means working with organizations like yours, Frank, but also with, with organizations like Manchester Digital and uh, Pro Manchester, the CBI, uh, the local chambers of commerce, so that they all understand um, what our students are capable of and what projects they can work on and that each 
each course that a student studies at our university has that applied learning element to it um, for those that work with businesses. Having said that, we also have more students graduating from our university who go into education uh, to become teachers, nurses, social workers. You know, the very people that we stood on our doorsteps at the beginning of this pandemic and applauded for, you know, they're our graduates. They're the people that are making a real civic contribution to the life of our city region. And we also have to be to step up to the plate. We're not a, uh, we don't have a medical school, so we're not going to find a, a cure for COVID, but we can be part of the solution to some of the problems the pandemic's thrown up. Mm. So, you know, our fashion Institute, for instance, worked with the prisons industries to produce face masks and PPE equipment at a time when our NHS, which had been so badly let down, um, was badly in need of product. Mm. And uh, again, we were, throwing our resources and our time at producing solutions like that. And, you know, what you've outlined there, Michael, is that universities need these days to be far more innovative and yeah. expansive in terms of what you offer because you are in a market and you're a business yeah. yourselves, and so it's important that you react to those markets. But I was interested to hear comments about Manchester and being the, the city it is. And again... You know, you and I go back far enough to remember when Manchester wasn't perhaps uh, that buzzing place, that metropolis that we see nowadays. And, uh, you know, through a period in the doldrums, um, not that dissimilar, I have to say, to uh, Liverpool and other northern cities. Um, but it came out of that um, quicker than those other places, stronger. And I think civic leadership alongside working with uh, some great private sector entrepreneurs and creatives and yeah. uh, you know I, I I couldn't go through an hour-long conversation with you without mentioning the late great Tony Wilson of course yeah. um, but you know this COVID crisis has now put some strains on cities in particular and I just wanted to get your thoughts on whether you think Manchester can bounce back uh, and if so how it will do that i think it's really tricky i think because of the very factors that i mentioned about why as a country we need a more federal a more devolved political system the very reason we haven't got that are one of the very reasons why the ambitions the city has to build back better is because actually local governments suffered from austerity over the last 10 years it is now isn't it mm -hmm. um, they've been starved of resources they have very few levers to pull um, devolution hasn't been followed through we're expecting in the course of the next six months in a normal political environment we would be, we'd be expecting an autumn budget a white paper on devolution um, a greater manchester spatial framework a comprehensive spending review and actually, what are we going to get out of any of that? Um, probably none of those. Yeah. I think the comprehensive spending review is essential. And Manchester's made its own submissions for us, for our university. We've contributed to it, as of Salford and, and Manchester and Bolton, to be fair. We have, you know, we've got that maturity to do things together. Um, there's talk as well that Dominic Cummings' hand is at play to, to do away with Greg Clark's version of what a local industrial strategy was. So both Cummings and COVID between them 
have unraveled lots of the opportunities for us to come out of this. And yet, I still see a great appetite for people to do things differently, as, uh, as we're wont to say. Where I think there's a, been a slight difference, and I think there'll be a difference of emphasis, which might, might be behind the delay to the um, Greater Manchester Spatial Framework, or to give it its full title, Greater Manchester's Plans for Jobs and Homes and Work, is uh, an emphasis a bit less on the centre and the city centre and Salford Keys, and maybe a little bit more on district centres. You know, Andy Burnham has signed off a mayoral development corporation for Stockport, yeah, to build around the station and to do imaginative things there, that there's a need actually to spread the love a little bit for, for other nodes of employment, for other nodes of, uh, of growth where people might want to live to think a little bit differently. And if we're all working from home, as I am in the suburbs where you're speaking to me today, you know, there, there have been three new bars opened in my local high street in the last few months. The next suburb along, Romilly, has got um, a number of little pop-up markets and shops that have happened. The cafes are buzzing during the day, whereas the cafes, obviously, that I'm not spending three pound on a latte, I'm spending it in, in my local district. And I think that's been, I've had this conversation on a couple of forums with Elise Wilson, the leader of Stockport, who's obviously a, a cabinet member. And I think it's starting to consume the thoughts of lots of people around that cabinet table about how greater Manchester evolves, not just in the centre. That, that's going to be a tension. That's going to be a tension that's going to have to be resolved at some point as well, because I think COVID has changed the way people use our city centres. And what goes on in those city centres? Are they nodes of employment? Are they going to be places where people, what, what's the nighttime and daytime economy is going to look like? Uh, very different, I'm sure. Yeah. And, yeah. It, we're, we're, we are in a, a period, I think, of transformation, um, more radical than, than you and I probably ever seen, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I wouldn't write off cities as much as some people are, and I think they will reinvent themselves, but they will have to reinvent. They won't be able to just go back to what they were pre-COVID um, and I think the other point that you've, you've raised a couple of times now and that I you know certainly support and as you know as an organization we support is that devolution take yeah. um, because if this has proved anything this crisis it's that you know the limited powers and responsibilities local government has had and the limited powers and responsibilities and soft power uh, yeah. that mayors enjoy has actually been used far more effectively and efficiently than anything from the central executive. And therefore, if there was ever a time to step up the articulation yeah. for the evolution to be accelerated, then it's now. Yeah. And actually the pressure that's gonna come from Scotland um, for independence uh, will, I think, mean that you know, the North of England, the Midlands uh, will be saying, well, what about us? because we have been massively let down uh, by the current structure of government. Yeah. And I guess the Conservatives are on a, are on a, are on a ticking clock as well. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, the seats like Andy Burnham's old seat of Lee, um, like many other seats across Greater Manchester, the Boltons in Bury, have gone blue. Yeah. And all those swathe of seats across Yorkshire, I'll tell you that you like this story. You mentioned Insider earlier. I had a call from an old colleague at Insider. We had a, 
um, uh, uh, a catch up just to see how each other were. He was Andy Coyne, a big Villa fan who's going to be very happy today. He rang me and how are you, mate? How's the family? All that sort of thing. And he and then he went, "Have you heard about Mark Eastwood?" And I thought he was going to tell me he was dead. <laughs> he was a salesman that we worked with in the Yorkshire um, office. And I was like, "Oh no, what?" He went, "He's the MP for Dewsbury." <laughs> I mean, I, ne I never heard Mark express a political opinion in all the time I worked with him. And, you know, after he left, he, he obviously got involved in Tory local politics and he got put up to stand in the general election. <laughs> and I, and to, to everybody's surprise, probably not, not the least his, <laughs> I now used to work with the MP for Dewsbury. <laughs> um, you know, and the, these aren't necessarily people you would have expected to have become Conservative MPs with the greatest respect that I've got for Mark mm -hmm. as, a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a good old boy. But that's, that, that's, and it's places like that. In four years' time, they're going to be turning around and going, so where's this levelling up that you promised us? Where are the jobs coming from? And they can't just click their fingers and make it happen. They can't revive Stoke in a heartbeat mm -hmm. or Dewsbury or, or huge parts of, of, of Greater Manchester. Um, Merseyside is not the same, <laughs> no. but um, you know that, that, that. But certainly, though, that that crumbling of the red wall is a big, big. It's a big challenge for Labour, and they're clearly very focused on it. But it's equal. It's a big challenge for Boris Johnson, because if he doesn't meet it, something else will. Because mm -hmm. that discontent isn't going away. Yeah, absolutely, and I, and I think that's going to be the um, when we get through COVID. Uh, that's going to be the battleground for, for the two major parties. And as I say, whatever may emerge from, from the, uh, the right, which uh, I think yeah. Nigel Farage seems to be on manoeuvres at the moment. So uh, we're not going to wait too long to find out what that is. Now, now, listen, before we finish our conversation, Michael, I just wanted to, because we've covered a wide range of things today, um, but I wanted to touch on um, something that I know is been real genuine interest to you uh, and will be probably even more important at this moment in time particularly given your role in the university and the young people uh, that you ultimately are responsible for and that's mental health yeah. um, because it's something that uh, has never been talked about as much um, but I don't think it's any better understood in many yeah. respects I think all the noise it's great. It's nice that people can come out now and say, yeah, you know, I've suffered from depression. I've had bouts of you know, times when I've been down and I've thought about all sorts of horrible things and doing things, self-harm and so on. Um, but we're going through a period of our history now where we're going to be seeing this problem, this challenge being even worse of anything. Yeah. Um, and again, I'm not sensing certainly at central government level any major response to that you know we're not talking about well where are the resources going to come from to actually ensure that at the end of this we've got a support infrastructure in place to talk to those young people who are going through the sort of times that you know you spoke about the students that's a horrible situation yeah. but i tell you and you'll know this there's people in far worse situations there are what are we going to do about that? And, and you know, not just young people, um, but I think it's a ticking time bomb, mate. I really do. Yeah, no, you're right to articulate it, Frank. And the, the, good, the good point is, yeah, we're talking about it now. But, and, you, and you're right. 
lots of people talk about it but it's whole it's a different conversation that we've come such a long way you know i think people like alistair campbell and to be fair to him nick clegg when he was in the coalition government they did raise it as an issue like so many of the other issues they couldn't make it actually an element of practical policy but the fact that employers are you know it's not the taboo that it once was for em employers i remember doing appraisals for people and if it, if if anybody ever wrote the s word stress mm. on their appraisal for oh yeah i get a bit stressed from time to time that rung a massive alarm bell and that you kind of mobilize the forces around to make sure what that was and you and you manage it um i think we've all been through those instances with with both people we manage and i think there is there has been an improvement in understanding and breaking the taboo. I don't think we should underestimate that that's been our big part and a big plus and a positive. I, I, I'm, I'm okay with that. What we do about it is an issue of resource. Yeah. And the NHS is crumbling as it, as it is. Yeah. And particularly, we're facing a massive mental health crisis as a result of people's changed circumstances. You know, the things that trigger people our instability of work and relationship breakdown more than anything else, any circumstances at work, whether they work for the public sector, whether they work in the private sector, the military, whatever it is, it's circumstances at work and circumstances in personal relationships that are going to be the trigger factors that have a detrimental effect on people's mental health. The fact employers are talking about it is good, but the fact that the NHS, that there are enormous waiting times for people you know, it's, it's great if you're earning a few quid and you can go and do something about it and go and see a therapist and great. But for lots of people, that isn't an option for them. And I think you're absolutely right. And I think the advocacy that you'll be able to give, Frank, as a business organisation with the clout that you've got and the ears that you've got, and I think it's really important that you make it a central plank of what you do to keep that awareness up for people. And, you know, I'm more than happy to work with you both from the university point of view and with other stakeholders that we can bring together to, you know, how we live better. There's, there's a project I've been involved in called Live Better Manchester that's brought people together. Um, and a friend of mine I mentioned earlier has been involved in Chris Bird. You know, let, let's see what we can do together, mm. you know, to, to accelerate that. Absolutely. Well, as you know, we're always open to good I know you are. I know that, you are. Uh, that meet good objectives. And it'd be good to work alongside you again. And there's another project that we won't talk about now that we might well be uh, launching again in the not too distant future as well. So uh, watch this space as far as that's concerned. Listen, mate, it's always great to catch up with you. It's been too long. It's, uh, we're long overdue a coffee. Maybe I'll nip over to Marple and... Uh, you can. You'd be very welcome. I'm one of those little local places and we can have a drink in there. But listen, you look after yourself and I'll see you very soon in face-to-face, uh, -face, hopefully, mate. Lovely. Great to talk to you, Frank. Brilliant. Thanks. That's Michael Taylor, who's at uh, Manchester Met. It's been great to speak to him today. And, uh, and that's it from the downtown den. We'll see you all again very soon. <laughs>